Imagine that one cool fall uh, afternoon, you're sitting in a, a little coffee shop, quaint little coffee shop uh, by the window, and you're sipping a cup of coffee and kind of, you know, holding it with your hands. You know how people do that so that the warmth gets through their hands, and, and you're sitting there, and your heart is troubled. Your heart is really troubled, and, and across the table sits your friend, and you find yourself pouring out your worries and your concerns to your friend, and, and I mean, you're really unloading here. You're just dumping it out all there on the table, and, and imagine that the friend sitting across is Jesus Christ, and after hearing all that you've unloaded onto him, he says, take heart, and you're a little shocked. You're a little shocked because you're thinking, take heart, that's it? Haven't you been listening to me? Haven't, haven't you heard what I've dumped out here for you? Take heart. That's all you got? That's all you can say? But before your thought is finished, Jesus adds, I have overcome the world. Now, this isn't going to happen, but if it did, what would that do for you? How, how, how would that impact you? Would it do anything would it quiet your soul? Would his victory over the world give you peace? Would it do anything for you? Let's face it. Life is stressful. We have trouble in this life. And sometimes, I don't know where this comes from, but sometimes I find myself thinking that I can escape it somehow, that maybe my life can be different from everybody else's and I don't have to have that kind of trouble in this world. Even when Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. We, we want to be comfortable so we grab at things, all kinds of things, just grabbing and, and we grab at what we think will make us more comfortable. And man, you could just fill in the blanks with the things that, that we turn to to give us peace, hoping that we will find peace in these things. Last week, we talked about joy. This week, we're going to talk about inner peace. Inner peace. How do we get inner peace that is not blind to reality? that does not turn away from what's actually happening, a peace that is grounded in the reality of what's happening around us, but a peace that withstands reality, a peace that thrives in hardship. Oh, to have that kind of peace in our lives. Very few people have peace. Five simple things from our passage today will show you how you can have it. And I mean really have it. Uh, Not only that, but how you can take heart when the world around you is burning to the ground. This is the end of Jesus' farewell discourse. Jesus prayed in chapter 17, and then they left the upper room. His closing words here are profound, and they're practical. So we need to hear this, and when we hear this, we're tempted to think, yeah, but there's got to be more to it. It can't be this simple, and we're tempted to supplement Jesus and what he says with otherworldly stuff, and that's often our problem. Jesus doesn't need to be supplemented, ever. Never, ever say, yeah, but, after hearing that Jesus Christ is your only answer. 
we must take heart because number one, five things. Number one, Jesus made the truth of God clear. Jesus made the truth of God clear. Jesus is the truth of God incarnate in the flesh. Jesus explains God. Look at verse 25. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Here, figures of speech are simply, simply statements that need explanation, statements that need to be interpreted. The teaching of Jesus needs interpretation. Uh, his language was veiled. But he promised his disciples that someday he would speak plainly about the Father. He would come out and say it. After his death and resurrection, Jesus would speak plainly about the Father. And then it was great because the Holy Spirit came and taught them very plainly about the Father. After his resurrection, great story, Jesus met two of his disciples on the way to Emmaus. And Luke 24, verse 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It was after his resurrection that he spoke plainly about God, about the Father. Acts 1 verse 3 is a key verse here. It says, to them, the apostles, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So as he showed himself alive and as he spoke, he made God clearer to his disciples. The resurrected Christ teaching. Did you know that Jesus had an effective teaching ministry during 40 days after the resurrection while he was still here on earth before he ascended to the Father? So good news, you don't have to wonder what God is like. Jesus told his disciples plainly about the Father and his disciples have written it down for you to know through God's word. You can know what God is like. You can know God as the Holy Spirit teaches you through the Bible. You can know God plainly. The Bible is where God is gloriously revealed to us. Do you want to know God? Jesus came to make him plain to us. The clarity of God's word is one big reason that we can face life with peace and confidence. The clarity, the perspicuity of God's word. We must take heart because number two, God loves us and we have direct access to him through Jesus. Just, just listen to this. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Jesus changed prayer forever. After the cross and resurrection, prayer would be in Jesus' name. When Jesus said, you will ask in my name, it, it didn't mean that they couldn't go to God directly and pray to God themselves. It didn't mean that. Jesus said in verse 26, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Jesus wasn't going to step in their place and ask God for them. 
they could go directly to the Father and ask him themselves. But they needed to ask God in his name. See, the person and work of Jesus was their access to the Father. Jesus opened the door to God. And there is fervency in this word, ask. Sometimes it can mean in Scripture to demand. Demand. Prayer is a fervent request of God. And though Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17, we see that. And though he intercedes from, for us, from the Father's right hand, as the Bible teaches, it doesn't cancel out the disciples' need to intensely ask God themselves. Asking God is a necessary discipline in the Christian's life. Ask. Ask. Earlier that night, Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You see, they asked Jesus and he would go to work for them. But the time was coming when they'd ask the Father directly in his name. And the Father would receive their requests because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. I read something that might help you with this. Quote, praying in Jesus' name means praying in a way consistent with his character and his will. It also means coming to God in the authority of Jesus. Probably both senses are intended here. End of quote. Why wouldn't Jesus just ask the Father for them? Why wouldn't Jesus just, he's God's son. Just ask your father for us. Why wouldn't he do that? And this needs to get through to you this morning. You need to hear this loud and clear. Here's why the father loved them. The father loved them. They had direct access to God to ask him because he loved them through his son, Jesus Christ. God doesn't just love and listen to Jesus He loves and listens to anyone who is united to his son Jesus by faith. You love Jesus Christ, you united to him by faith, you have direct access to God to ask him directly. This is a wonderful, wonderful truth. And some of you need to believe that God has deep, deep affection for you. And that his affection is better than anything else in life. Some of you need to get that. King David said that God's steadfast love is better than life. Better than life itself. God loves you so much through Christ that you can always ask God. And there's more in verse 27. This will really stretch you. So you've got to hang on tight and think here so you don't get lost in this. Jesus explained why God loved them. Why God loved them, and he added, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. The because of verse 27 is really important because it explains why God loved them. Now, wait a second. Isn't the love of God unconditional? We've heard plenty of times that the love of God is unconditional. Verse 27 sounds like Jesus was giving conditions to the love of God. Doesn't it sound like that? Well, God's love is unconditional. 
in a certain way. It depends how we define that. But here, God loved the disciples because they loved Jesus and had believed that he came from God. The the love in verse 27 is the love shared between father and children, a particular and exclusive love for those who love and follow Jesus. Hear this. God does not love everyone in the same way. God does not love everyone in the same way. I love the women of Jerusalem church, but I love my wife Christina in a very particular and unique way above all the rest of the women here at Jerusalem, and that is healthy and that is good, and none of you would take an issue with that at all. I hope not. The love of God is similar A conditional love showed up before in John 14, 21 and 23. Jesus said this, he who loves me will be loved by my father. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Loving Jesus and obeying him are conditions that must be met in your life for you to know and receive the love of God. If you don't really care about Jesus, if you aren't obeying him and abiding in his word, then you should have no confidence that God loves you with a fatherly love. You should not have that. It's not yours. Listen to 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called Key phrase, children of God, and so we are. God loves his children with an exclusive love. Do you love Jesus with all of your heart? Do you believe that Jesus came from the Father, from God? I hope so, because that would mean that God deeply loves you as his child. Jesus called Judas a son of destruction. Jesus called Judas a devil. God did not love Judas like he loved the other 11. God doesn't love his enemies like he loves his kids. He has a saving love, a matchless love for his children. And to receive that paternal love of God, you need to love and trust Jesus Christ. Now, this is very dangerous talk. Make sure you do not misunderstand. God's love is unconditional in the sense that he loves us first. Without us ever doing anything to deserve or merit his love. If you're not careful, you will twist this uh, section of scripture and you won't understand it as Jesus intended it. 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Or 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. God loved us first. We were children of wrath, 
as the Bible talks about, and Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 say, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has, which, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God loved us when we were dead in sin. In sin. So the disciples loved Jesus and believed that he came from God because God loved them first and made them alive to love him in return. God's love for us produces love in us for him. Not convinced? Go to Galatians and you'll see that love is fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. 1 John 5.1 teaches that belief in God is a result of being born again. The only way that, that love for and belief in Jesus can exist in someone is if God put it there, if God causes them to be born again. So what does all this mean? Your head might be spinning a little bit, but what does this mean? It means that God is amazingly gracious towards us. This is why we call it amazing grace. Every condition we need to be loved by God is given to us as a gift. We call it grace. God chooses us. God predestines us. God regenerates us. God gives us repentance and faith. God justifies us. Grace, 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 amazing grace. God gives us what we need to meet every condition to be unceasingly loved by Him. We call it sovereign grace. Now think about it this way. To go to college, you need a bunch of conditions to be met. Tuition, room, and board are obviously massive conditions that need to be met. If you don't pay, you don't stay. All right? So most students, they can't pay. All right? Harvey Mudd College. How many of you have heard of Harvey Mudd College? I didn't either. Don't feel bad. Harvey Mudd College is a liberal arts uh, college in California which has an absurd tuition, room, and board rate of over, I kid you not, $67,000 a year. The most expensive college in the United States. A degree from Harvey Mudd would cost you well over $270,000. So imagine that a loving father deposits $70,000 at the beginning of each year into his child's bank account so that they can pay tuition room and board to go to study at Harvey Mudd College to then later obtain their degree. The college student meets the condition of tuition, room, and board every year, but only because of the loving deposits that that father makes into that student's account. The money is an extravagant gift of love to the child, which guarantees they will meet the necessary conditions. Well, in a similar way, God pours his love into his children through the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 5.5. 5. And then his children possess the love for Christ needed to remain in the Father's love. Do you see it? Grace upon grace upon grace. Think of it this way. I love, love, love the dear children of Jerusalem church. 
but only three are getting my inheritance. (laughs) Only three possess the rights and privileges of being Jonathan's son or daughter or who knows. Only three, yes, you could count four, life begins at conception, count baby two, only three, only four receive my fatherly love. God doesn't give his fatherly love to everyone. And you need to hear this, God is fiercely opposed to a lot of people. He is against people. This is not a universal God is for you. That's not true. Think about James 4, 6. God opposes the proud. That means God is set against, God is hostile toward prideful people, the people whose lives are categorized by pride and not love for Jesus Christ. So if you're sitting there, I love Jesus, but I get prideful sometimes. Look, you're in Christ, all right? But those whose lives are categorized by pride, God opposes them. 1 Corinthians 16, 22 says this, if anyone has no love for the Lord, does that parallel what we're talking about here in John? Yeah. Let him be accursed, not loved by God, but anathema. That might be a word that you've heard before. Anathema, cursed. If you don't love Jesus, you live under the curse of God. John 8, 42 is pretty straightforward about this. Jesus, talking with some very religious Jews, okay, said very bluntly, if God were your father, meaning God wasn't their father, you would love me, for I came from God and am here. Later he said, you are of your father, the devil. God is not the father of people who don't love and believe Jesus. So what you love most, my friends, and what you believe play a part in whether God loves you. So you really need to think about what you love most and what you believe. Affections and doctrine matter. Matter. What you feel and what you believe matter. Well, the disciples, in this case, could take heart because who did they love? Jesus. And man, were they ever far from perfect, amen? But they loved Christ, and and they believed that he came from God, and Jesus drove home the point. God loved them. God loved them. God loved them because they were united to Christ by faith. So if you are united to Christ by faith, it doesn't take perfection. It takes faith in the perfection of Christ. So you don't have to clean up in order to come to Christ. Just come to Christ and trust that he is clean and can make you clean. And so if you are united to Christ by faith, understand, you got to hear this loud and clear, how God feels about you. Zephaniah 3.17 says this. This is awesome. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God sings, and he sings over you. I think he's excited about being in relationship with those who love Jesus. If you love Jesus, you got to hear this. God rejoices over you. He exalts over you. He's glad about you. This is deep. 
All that because of Jesus. Can you see how important it is to love Jesus and to believe that he came from God? You don't want to do without that. You've got to have Jesus. Please hear this. Loving and believing Jesus is the key to enjoying the fatherly love of God. We must take heart because, number three, Jesus came from the world into the world and left the world to return to his Father. Actually, Jesus came from God. I'm sorry. Jesus came from God into the world and left the world to return to his Father. Jesus was very clear in verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And this one simple statement is packed with theology. Can you see the theology here? And the disciples only understood like a little bit of it. First, Jesus came from the Father. He was not created. He is the eternally begotten Son of God. Micah 5.1 says that the origin of Jesus Christ is from of old, from ancient of days. Jesus came to earth because he was sent by God, sent from God. And throughout John, Jesus has said that the Father sent him. Second, Jesus came into the world Jesus is the eternal word of God, the second person of the Trinity, God's son incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary. Paul said that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. God entered time and space as a human being. Third, a few hours after saying this, Jesus was crucified and he left the world. He died. Fourth, his death reunited him with his father. The crucifixion would send him to God. Some people believe that Jesus died and that he went to hell and that he preached to the souls that were imprisoned there. And and I just want to say this clearly. I think that's a dangerous view. It is one of the historic views, but I think it's dangerous. And I must say that I do not like the phrase from the Apostles' Creed which says he descended into hell. It has been a controversial phrase for centuries, okay, for theologians, and, and I think modern day that is just flat out confusing for people. I don't think they know what it means. When you hear that, I mean, I'd love to poll you all, but I bet some of you are thinking he descended into hell. He went there to suffer under the wrath of God in hell because maybe the cross wasn't sufficient enough for Jesus to take care of our sins there, so he had to go to hell, or he had to go, another view, he had to go to preach to get souls out of hell. I just think it's confusing. Jesus did not go to hell after he died. He went to the place of the dead, as some call Hades or hell, They take that line to mean that historically. He was actually dead, and in that sense, absolutely. But he died on the cross, and his spirit returned to his father. And and I believe that for several reasons that I hope I can make clear here. John 13, 3 says that Jesus had come from God and was going back to God. In, in John 14, 28, he said he was going to the Father. Jesus said in John 16, 5, but now I am going to him who sent me. On the cross, Jesus told the thief beside him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is not hell. Paradise is the dwelling place of God. Fifth, I think verse 28 may also include Christ's ascension where he left earth once again and returned to his father once again. 
Think about what's in verse 28. The eternality of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension of Jesus. Verse 28 is packed with Christology, all of which feeds our confidence in Christ. It's all from Jesus' mouth, it's all true, and it all builds courage and confidence in Christ. You can see then in verses 29 and 30 that the disciples thought that they understood Jesus, they thought that he was speaking plainly right then at that moment, but things were not as plain as they would be in a little while. And Uh, But they understood that Jesus knew all things, even their hearts and minds, and that he didn't need anyone to question him. You see, Jesus could anticipate questions that were coming to him. He did that throughout the book of John, and he knows the answers to those questions. He had all the answers, and he did come from God, and they were getting it, but so much was yet to come that they didn't understand at this time. And Christ's knowledge and Christ's wisdom just built their confidence in his divine origin. We must take heart because number four, when we are unfaithful, Jesus is always faithful. The disciples were so many times too confident in themselves, and Jesus rebuked them here. I think it's a rebuke. So with some irony in his voice, Jesus asked, do you now believe? Do you? Do you believe? He questioned their overconfidence. The NIV translates this, you believe at last. I think that's just flat out misleading. Uh, Most reliable translations have it as an ironic question. Do you believe? Do you now believe? And they thought they understood, yet their faith would be tested and they would fail. When the test came, they all failed. Each would abandon him when the time came. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus told them, after they left the upper room, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. When the time came, Matthew 26, 56 says, all the disciples left him and fled The man who wrote that fled. The only one who didn't run was Jesus. He would stand alone. Why? To offer himself up as the only means by which men and women can be saved from their sin in hell forever. He would be faithful when everyone else was unfaithful, but he, would stand, but he wouldn't stand alone. Someone else would stand with him through the tribulation. Yet I am not alone, Jesus said, for the Father, for the Father is with me. I believe faithfulness flows from the power and presence of God. How can we take heart knowing our tendency to abandon Jesus when things get tough? You there? I am. How do you take heart in that? I'm just going to fail him tomorrow. How do you take heart in that? Here's how. Jesus never abandons you. Never. We can take heart because when we abandon him, he never abandons us. Never, ever, ever trust your own uh, ability to remain faithful to Jesus. Trust Jesus' ability to remain faithful to you. Asaph, the psalm writer, was right. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart. That's why you can take heart. 
The Father strengthened Christ, and he'll strengthen you if you trust Christ. He will. We must take heart because, number five, last one, though we will have trouble in this life, we find our peace in Christ because he has conquered the world. This is where it all comes together. If you really believe this one point and, and, and you treasure this deep in your heart and draw courage from it, you will be able to endure any trouble and trial in this life. Any. Any. Just listen to Jesus say it. He's saying it. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Understand what Jesus is doing. He was helping his disciples understand that true inner peace comes from him alone. It was only in him. He was their peace. And since they would get pressed by the world, he wanted them to know that his supremacy was the only reality big enough to actually give them heart amid tribulation. Four quick things from this verse. Number one, the world will give us trouble. Tribulation means pressing together. Just imagine pressure. Life will squeeze you. As long as you're alive, life will be troublesome. Number two, Christ will give us peace. You have to trust Christ to have peace in Christ. We can't expect to have true inner peace if we're not drawing it directly from Christ. You have to be in Christ to have the peace of Christ. That means that by grace, through faith, you are united to Christ and enjoying the peace that only he gives. And that's why you can't try out Jesus. You can't just say, I'll give him a try for a while. You have to be all in, in Christ, by faith. Then you get the peace that you so desperately desire. He actually gives it because you're in him. Jesus said that in me you may have peace. In the world you're going to have trouble. In Christ you will have peace. Don't expect to find peace in the world. It's not there, my friends. It's in Christ alone. Peace is inner rest, inner harmony. It's restfulness of the soul. And people want that peace and they they try to do a lot of things to get it. They, They even try to buy it. Money can't buy it. You can't have it unless you receive it free from Christ by being united to Christ. And notice, peace is linked in this passage to the words of Jesus. The word of God gives us peace. We fight anxiety and fear with faith in God's word, faith in God's promises. Nothing else is sufficient or powerful enough to help you get that peace that you want. Back in John 14, 27, Jesus said he gives his peace to his disciples, but not as the world gives them peace. Jesus gave them divine peace. Number three, our peace is secure because Christ has already conquered the world. How do we know that Jesus will give us peace that is more than the peace that the world can give us? Simple, superior power. Jesus has overcome the world. This is great, but on on May 7th, 1945, news came that the Nazis surrendered and that the war was over in Europe. And after hearing the news, some 500,000 people flooded into Times Square to celebrate. And Life magazine uh, described these wild street celebrations like this. Quote, the workers swarmed out of their shops singing and dancing, drinking whiskey out of bottles, wading in their own weird confetti. 
stuff was just falling. And so there was a celebration all over the world because the Allies had conquered and peace had come to Europe. Peace was celebrated because the Allies held supremacy. It's the same principle for you. Peace will come in your heart when you believe that Christ has overcome the world. It'll be there if you're really believing. And we must celebrate the supremacy of Christ and peace will be there in Christ's victory. You can take heart because everyone that stands with Jesus is more than a conqueror. 1 John 5, 4 says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is our victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. Everyone likes to win. You like to win. You like to watch teams that like to win. You like to be around people who like to win. Board games, I like to win. You probably wouldn't like playing me because I actually really want to destroy you on that board. Somehow, that's just too much. But winning provides a certain peace after the battle is won. And Christ has conquered. And that's why our peace can be secure in Christ. Number four, we have every reason to take heart. We have every reason to take heart. Jesus told the disciples to take heart because he had overcome the world, not because a comfortable life was coming, not because they would all retire wealthy, but because he was the champion. Amen? Come on, he won. And that's what Jesus thought would strengthen his disciples the most in their time of struggle. I won, I won, I conquered. It's me, look at me. I will give you peace. Do you want it? Look at me. I won. I'm champion. Is the supremacy of Christ what helps you take heart in life? Does the glory of the cross and resurrection have a calming effect on your life? Does it hearten you, embolden you? The world is burning to the ground. How do you have peace and and courage as you stand in the middle of the flames? And I really struggle with my attitude and thoughts when I hear all of the evil in the world. I'm often moved to cynicism. I've often moved to fear of what's coming. And that's because I take my eyes off of the fact that Christ has won. We need to get ourselves quickly to Christ every day to draw comfort and strength from knowing he is supreme and victorious. Jesus Christ has overcome the world and that means something for you every day you wake up. His victory is the key to our joy. His victory is the key to our peace. His victory is the key to our courage as we press on to the end. So take heart. Christ has conquered the world. Father, amen. For your fame and for your glory, I pray that we can go quickly to Christ and to rejoice that he has overcome the world. In his name we pray, amen.